Welcome to the Adventure Audio Podcast. This is episode 158. We are welcoming Nat Gillis onto the show. Nat and Laval know each other through the pilot world. So she is a pilot. She is a very accomplished nature photographer and adventurer and poet, writer. She is a whole bunch of things. She is a really, really interesting guest. We loved having her on, Nat. Thank you so much for making the time. And I hope that we can have you back soon. I will put links into the show notes. I would strongly encourage everybody to check out Nat's uh, photography page on Instagram, as well as her personal Instagram account and her website. Incredible images there and a very, very talented human being. So again, thank you, Nat, for coming on. I know everybody's going to love this episode. A quick reminder that we are running a contest from 4i Technologies. So that's four and then the letter I four times. 4i.com is where you can visit them. We are giving away a couple of power meters as well as a couple of their uh, very awesome heart rate monitors. So in order to enter the contest, you need to find the clue in this episode. And this one is what was Nat's preferred sleeping method on her bike packing trip through British Columbia? So you can email that to us at adventureaudiopodcast at gmail.com or just shoot us a message on our Instagram page. Uh, just shoot us a DM with the answer to that and you will be entered to win. So we're running this for four weeks. We had a previous episode. So our last episode of Tyler Hamilton also qualifies for that. There's clues in that one. You can enter in every episode that we come out with. So this was it's our second. We're going to do two more after this. Enter every single time. Shoot us a note or an email to get entered and you can possibly win a power meter or a heart rate monitor from 4i. So thank you for the support, 4i. Thank you everybody for tuning in. As we say at the top and a lot of times at the end of every episode, the best way to support the podcast is simply by word of mouth. But of course, social media is a very powerful tool. So if you're able to share anything that we are putting out there uh, to some of your audience or by giving us a positive rating and review on whatever podcast platform you're finding the show, there's that functionality and that helps us find new audience members. So we appreciate you doing so. Thank you again for tuning in. Thank you, Nat, for joining us, and on to episode 158 of Adventure Audio. Nat Gillis, how do I introduce you? Let's start with photographer, wilderness guide, poet, bush pilot, um, you're a writer. Have I missed anything? And that what sums it up. <laughs> Welcome to the Adventure Audio Podcast. I've been uh, wanting to get you on for a few months, but you're pretty hard to nail down. So we're uh, happy to have you. Yeah, I'm so glad our schedule's been lined up for this. Yeah. So Nat, I need to find out where you're from. Like, are are you a Calgarian? Are you from? Oh, west. You seem to love the mountains. You obviously love the north and the and the south, the polar regions. Where what what brings you to Calgary? Uh, well, I'm originally from Toronto. I escaped shortly after high school and was moving around a whole bunch in uh, in my twenties, and then I just saw uh, all of the mountains here and it kind of came home for me. And so you're you're. Would you say you started off as a photographer before you got into this other stuff, or were you a wilderness guide first? How do, what was the what was the start of your of your adventure career, your adventure life? Starting the adventure life, um, if I could nail it down, it's probably kayaking. 
I really fell in love with kayaking when I was younger and I'd always wanted to go north with it and got into the guiding with that. I always had a little point and shoot camera with me on uh, the trips that I was taking up north and eventually the little point and shoot turned into more real camera and yeah, eventually just uh, just got a little bit more into the photography side of things, which I think went hand in hand with the writing and yeah, really inspired by the north. I, I love it up there, try and spend as much time as I can. So now just before we had our audio problems, we were talking about your very first trip to the Arctic. So you said you went up to uh, Baffin Island. You went to eastern Baffin Island to Kikatarjuak and uh, Pangertung. And you uh, hiked the famous pass between the two villages. Was that the first time you'd been in uh, Nunavut? Yeah, that would have been the first trip of many for the next few years up there. And I just fell in love with it. It was, it was yeah. that rainy season up there. Like it was, it was cold and wet and you didn't see a lot of sunshine, but it was so beautiful. Just the mountains and everything just really, really struck me. And how did that even come about? Like why, why that place and why that route to start? Um, I got really lucky pretty much out of high school with a, a adventure company based out of Ontario and they specialized in doing trips up north. So they had uh, routes going through the Northwest Territories, Nunavut, Greenland, all the, all the fun and exciting places. So my first year with them, I was apprenticing and I was down in mostly Ontario, Quebec, and then the following year, um, eventually got sent up north. Awesome. Was that Blackfeather? Is that who you were with at the time? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I've, I've run into them once I was doing a trip on Ellesmere and I ran into uh, Blackfeather. Are they still around? Yeah, they're, uh, oh boy, 52 years now. Wow. Oh, yeah, it's wow. a little company. Just wonderful, wonderful people. So so now we have a pretty big uh, U.S. listener uh, audience and uh, quite a bit of Brits and Aussies, sort of the um, the standard English podcast type uh, audience. Can you explain to people or explain to me, because I'm absolutely hooked on the North and the South as well, but what was it about, what, what is it about, Baffin Island and Nunavut and what is it that uh, that hooked you like that because you come from Ontario you come from Canadian shield country meaning beautiful lakes and big trees and and it's sort of a heavily populated area not that far away what is it about Nunavut that uh, that hooked you what is it about the north oh man yeah I've, I've been asking myself that same question for <laughs> years but um yeah, it's hard to put your finger on exactly what it is. I don't really think it's one or two things. It's just the combination of like the sparseness, the remoteness, the wilderness that you can just go off in any direction for days and days and days and you know, reliably expect not to see another human being. Um, untouched, just expansive land. There's no trees, so you're far above the uh, tree line. So it just feels like you can see for, for days and it's just... Uh, Something about it, everything's very simple and beautiful, and the landscape's just absolutely incredible. And that's the photographer. I mean, I love it. it it's hard to take a bad picture up there because it's just—it's so beautiful. Even the lighting seems different, doesn't it? In the north, mm. it just uh, there's something so ultra clear about it, and you can't judge distances because we don't have trees. We we use trees as a way to to determine how far away something is. Well, I know how big that tree is, so that person must be. The, and yeah. Uh, distances there are very deceiving aren't they oh absolutely yeah you can go hiking and you know point off to people like yeah we're going to be uh camping by that lake over there like oh we'll be there at lunch like "Eh, maybe dinner (laughs) but uh yeah it's just it makes you feel as small and you can see forever 
So where have you been in the north? What uh, what parts of uh, of the Canadian Arctic have you been to? Parts of the Canadian Arctic have I been to? Um, so all three territories. I've probably spent my most time in Nunavut. Um, with the adventure guiding, I've done hikes on Ellesmere Island, Axel Hyber, um, all over Baffin Island. I used to work on ships as well, so we've taken those through. Northwest Passage, Lancaster Sound. Um, with aviation, I've been based out of the Cowlitz and Resolute Bay, and flown to uh, quite a few destinations that have all over the map up there. But uh, yeah, I've been all over. What got you into flying then? How did that happen? <laughs> because I don't think you're originally flying when I first uh, was introduced to you by Kim Gray from uh, uh, Took and Canoe, or had you been flying at that point? Um, I had been flying at that point. Um, yeah, the guiding definitely was what brought me into that. So for the trips that I was doing high in the in the Arctic, we would have to charter at Betwin Otter to get ourselves into these remote locations. And one year, just one of the pilots let me sit in his seat. And that must have been back in 2012. And it was, I, I just distinctly remember it. It was one of the first times I was ever in you know, a small airplane. And I just fell in love with it, just flying through the mountains and valleys and the expansiveness of it all I just I absolutely fell in love with it so it took me quite a while I started flying um I got my private license in 2014 and then a little bit of a slow crawl rest but uh I was guiding at the same time and flying on the side and yeah eventually just got all of my licenses and ratings and yeah just trying to make a career out of it now and integrate those two passions right which is which is seems like what you've done so how could I like it seems like you're like well i love coming here anyways so why don't i just <laughs> why don't i just get in the pilot seat which is a pretty cool way to look at it <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely it's uh yeah it's been a different way to experience a pretty incredible part of the world so i'm super fortunate to, to have the experiences that i've had your journey into aviation is exactly what my son how it happened with my son eric we were with uh we were flying in a northright caravan and for the listeners that's a single engine a bush plane into a place called Toledo and Delaney in the Northwest Territories. And the pilot said to him as a 14-year-old, he said, Eric, do you want to sit in front? And Eric kind of shrugged his shoulders and said yes. And then a few days later, we were canoeing on the Great Bear River. And he said, hey, Dad, I think I want to become a pilot. Now he's flying an ATR-42 out of uh, Yelena. So just like That's that, just awesome. just just by getting that little tiny bit of a push, right? Yeah, just that little taste photography i want to go back to that for a second because i'm like i told laval off off air that i'm just mesmerized by your instagram account like the photography is so beautiful but it's a lot of wildlife so i don't think that people appreciate how much patience you probably need to be photographing wildlife the way that you do like this is like hunting like some of these shots you must have to just wait and wait and wait in 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 really cold not hospitable environments so can you tell us a little bit about that like how do you strategize about where to set something up are you familiar with certain types of animals and you know where to get to or are you just always at the ready when you're out exploring like what does that actually look like because these like this instagram account must represent hundreds of hours of sitting around waiting for something to happen yeah yeah good question about that um and it's, i think quite specific to the places that i was guiding and the photography is very much an offshoot of the guiding work that I was doing. So you're right, lots of hours sitting and waiting, but also kind of working at the same time with the guiding. So um, oftentimes I would have 
photography specific groups that you know really wanted to get polar bears or really wanted to see a certain type of penguin so um, part of the guiding was being uh, a little bit knowledgeable about the certain types of areas that you're working in and where those animals would be and, and intentionally going out and, and trying to find them um, and other times it's just a matter of luck like at the kayaking you know a humpback whale would come up and investigate our our boats and that's just more of a matter of luck but I think it's a uh, also just a factor of how much time I'll be spending out. So if I did full seasons in the Arctic and then full seasons down in Antarctica with the guiding, it's like just kind of you're gonna be out there for so long, eventually you're gonna, you know, put yourself in the right position to to get some good shots and have some really cool factors with animals. Pete, I'm seeing a theme here. Nat is using her jobs to get her into the places that she loves. And it's like this positive feedback loop. She's getting paid for guiding, but at the same time, she's doing <laughs> photography. She's flying in the her favorite part of the world, getting paid to fly up there again. Like this is just this. She's got this brilliant scam going. I think. Don't you agree? <laughs> totally. Yeah. Like I think I think that that's a thing that people take for granted. That you even even if your jobs are not similar, or even if your passions and your hobbies and your job aren't similar, there there's more ways to integrate that and have some synergy in your life than than people realize like even even for you Laval, like work travel like you never just go somewhere do what you need to do there for work and then come back you never do that i don't do that for work travel either mm -hmm. so i think there's there's probably there's a, a lesson in there for people listening that it's not like an on off switch it's more like a dimmer so maybe sometimes you're a little more focused on one thing or another but they don't need to be completely separate worlds. Now, like Nat's situation is even, it's perfect for integrating because of where you're traveling and your passion for wildlife photography or photographing the outdoors. But I think there's something there that's that's important for people to understand that it's all, it's your world and you can build it kind of however you want. It's just a matter of being stubborn about it and making it work. Intentionality, living intentionally, not just sort of going with the flow. Yeah. Nat, where is your, uh, speaking with, since we're, I mean, we have so many topics, this is, we touched mm -hmm. on aviation, but right now we're in photography. So, uh, you've, uh, done some incredible, uh, photography trips, even though you were flying down in Antarctica, you've done some great stuff in, uh, the Canadian Arctic. You just recently got back from, um, it was a, um, I think it was a women's only wilderness trip into uh, Jasper National Park. You got s some fantastic photos there. You've been in the mountains here with our, our um, autumn, early autumn snowfalls that we've had. Do you have a, a, a place on your, a bucket list that you want to go to? Or are you able to find beauty anywhere that you travel? Um, that's a good question. Um, I'd like to say, yeah, it's uh, always kind of, a really good thing to be able to have an eye out for for beautiful things and be able to capture images no matter where you're going but i certainly do have some favorites i'm really inspired by more wilderness areas so kind of untouched natural landscapes and and the animals that all those places home um the one place i've actually never been able to photograph was that valley in Ainuta, um baffin island so i've i've gone in there like nine or ten times now but i've never had a camera with me on that particular oh trip. no yeah just because you're hiking and you know it's it's two weeks that you're out so your pack is heavy and you know if you have the choice between do i want to carry a camera or an extra bottle of fuel i kind of want to take the extra bottle of fuel so 
I've never been able to go in there on a personal trip to uh, to photograph the valley. And I think that would be my one kind of bucket list place that I would love to go to and just have my own adventure and do something on them just in that place. So when you're in a place like Ayuitec, we, we all know, our, I mean, people who, who know, know the that area, The it, there's all the iconic images of it, right? The giant mm-hmm. granite faces and and the specific lakes and, and the, the way people capture the pass is quite, um, I don't want to say standard, but we all recognize it. It's kind of like the Three Sisters in Cannes where we've seen it a thousand yeah. times or Moraine Lake, we've seen it 10,000 times. It doesn't uh, Mount Assiniboine, for example. Some angles of it we always see. Are you interested in getting out there? And because of your your, um, I guess your athletic and your uh, adventuring background, going somewhere and getting different angles. Do you want something more? Is it as a photographer, are you looking to to put your stamp on a place because of the a different angle or a different mood that you've captured? Is that something that that goes to your mind? Good question. Um, yeah, that is a really good question. Um. You're right. It's it's a heavily photographed area. It's not like no one's ever taken, you know, images in the past before. Um, there's certainly a beautiful catalog of images like you just searched on Instagram or Facebook for images of the park. Like it's it's a hard place to take a bad photograph because it is so beautiful in there. Um, I try and when I'm doing my photographs, be a little bit independent of what else is out there. I think there's so many different ways of interpreting landscapes and I don't wanna get chew down the rabbit hole of comparative photography and being like, oh, well, this other photographer, they captured this already. So, you know, like, I'm not going to do that angle. I just, I like being in a place and if something stands out at me, it's a really well-composed image or there's just something in the landscape that I find really beautiful and maybe do my own thing with it. And if that resembles someone else's photograph, then great. But I think the cool thing about the valley is that it's always changing. The glaciers look so different than they did you know, a decade ago, there's big rock slides that happen in the valley. It's 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 ever changing, and conditions there are so wild. We change so frequently that I, I think it would be pretty impossible to take the same image twice. Yeah, um, truly the same image, right? Yeah, same place, but not the same image. Yeah. So when you're walking when you're walking in these landscapes, and you know you're chatting with a client, or you're you're with your friends, or whatever. You're you're hiking, and you're going through the rocks and crossing the the rivers, and we took, do you suddenly just go, holy shit, holy shit, and you stop, pull out your camera, and get a shot because you've got that, the light is just right, the cloud, the fog, the there's a bear in the distance or muskox or like, is that how it goes? Is it like these holy shit moments that you try and just capture? Yeah, absolutely. Um, maybe less so when I'm like actively guiding and, you know, kind of have a job to do. But um, I find for myself, like even this one, I'm out in the Rockies out here um, in our backyard, it's just like, I love having a camera sort of handy with me because it's not like unintentionally setting out like I'm going to get to this particular lake and at that lake I'm going to take this one image. I, I'm more mm-hmm. so like having that experience moving through the landscape and if something does trigger me, like, wow, that is really cool. Just having the camera ready for that instant is, is sort of my style of going about it. And if I capture something really cool, great. If I get to the parking lot at the end of the day and I didn't take a single image because, you know, conditions kind of suck then that's okay too that's kind of the thing about well it's like any art there's so much stuff that like there's a whole bunch of songs that never got written right there's ideas that happen and they never actually 
materialize into anything because the inspiration doesn't finish or whatever. And I'm wondering, I think about all the times that I cycle past something that would have been an awesome photo. Yes. By the time I try and get one glove off and get yeah. my phone out, it's gone. The, the moment's gone. gone, right? Like for the images that you've captured, there must be thousands that you can't, but that's, that's the art, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I can't tell you how many images that exist only in my memory because, you know, I didn't have a battery in my camera or, you know, a memory card corrupted or, you know, any sort of technical issue that, that would have happened, but. Yeah, Isn't that nice though to to have captured it only in your memory? The problem is, is that our SD cards in our brain start to fade and change, and 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 you can't show it to anybody. But but you have the ability to describe it in poetry, right? So you're you're capturing things that may not be in an SD card, but then you're turning that into language, which is a really unique. To be a photographer, first of all, to be a, a pilot, we're not known for being overly a creative. I don't think. And then being a photographer where you're using uh, images, but then you've just described not being able to capture an image, but you have the ability to, to turn that into to text, into, into poetry, which is, how did that happen? Uh, how did that happen? Good question. Um, yeah, I think just another vehicle for expressing. Um, I mean, with the photography, it, it's a really immediate way of showing something to someone very intentional, like, hey, I saw a whale. Whales are really cool. Check it out. Big whale. Awesome. But I, I feel like poetry, it's, you know, a little bit more subtle. It's a little bit more emotive. And it leads so much more up to the recipient in terms of their interpretation of what you're trying to communicate to them. So I love that kind of ambiguity with it. It's just, it can mean, the same poem can mean so many different things to different people. Um, but I really fell in love with poetry when I was a lot younger. And it's been something that I've been studying more in an academic sense and yeah just writing kind of yeah it gets me the same way as photography it's just another outlet for creative expression i guess and yeah i really enjoy it on the photography question and the wildlife photography question right now in alberta especially we've we just had a horrible uh grizzly bear attack where two experienced outdoors people were killed about i don't know 120 150 kilometers from where we're sitting right now and that has brought grizzlies into the news it's brought wildlife encounters into the news it, it causes the media to go back and and uh reissue stories about fatal grizzly bears grizzly bear attacks in our area you have many photos of polar bears um i'm not sure what your experience has been with grizzlies but have you had encounters out on the uh on the land with, uh, with bears? Um, yeah, certainly up north, bears are kind of a fact of life up there. You're walking into their backyard, essentially. It's their home. Um, I, I feel like context is important. So knowing what time of year it is, is a really big one for me. So in the springtime, when the seal pups are out, those bears are so well fed. They're, you know, they're not hungry, starving bears but if you uh if you go to the same place maybe later in the season when the ice is out and hungry bears that are desperate then it's a bit of a different situation um i also feel that's kind of transferable to any type of bear so yeah right now um it's definitely been a hard season for for the bears with the early frost that they had um but yeah it's uh it's really really sad what happened uh what happened in Banff there it's 
never get to hear about those things, especially for people that are extremely experienced and did everything right. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's just unavoidable. It's part of, it's part of being in this, in this world that we're in, right? You can make all the right moves, do it perfectly, hang your food a hundred meters from the tent and have your bear spray and your dog and there's nothing you can do, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's what I, you know, every time I hear about something and I, we don't hear about them often, but every time I do, I, I have to admit that I immediately look for the mistake, right? It's like, well, I wouldn't, you know, were they alone? Were they, did they not have bears? Like there's always in my mind, there's a reason so that if I do everything right, it won't happen to me. But at least, yeah. you know, these folks seem like they did everything right. And that's just, it's the wrong, wrong place, wrong time. Just like a car wreck. You know, it's uh, you have to keep in perspective, though, right? It, you know, the number of fatal bear attacks we have compared to the number of people that are dying every day in traffic accidents or opioid overdoses. I mean, it's not even in remote a possibility. I mean, obviously, the more time you spend in the in the backcountry, you increase your odds. But are you going to sit in your basement because you're scared of bears? No, you, you do. You take a measured risk, right? Yeah, and you yeah. mitigate the risk as much as you can, and and that often means in um, in areas of Nunavut, you're you're traveling with the gun, right? Um, you're you're not intending on using it to last resort, but it would be uh, almost irresponsible in some areas because polar bears are predators and they actively hunt uh, marine mammals, especially. But if they see an upright seal covered in Gore-Tex, they're going to come after you as well, right? If they're hungry enough, so you got to be smart about it. Yeah, I ha I interviewed um, interviewed a gentleman who did the northernmost Everesting, which is a cycling challenge, but uh, in northern Norway, um, in uh, uh, Long Yerbin, and he said like everybody has a gun. They just there's just everybody has a rifle, like just walking around on the street because there's just bears everywhere. They're like squirrels. So That's it's cool. just a it's just a matter of matter of where what environment you're in and, and being aware of these things and but uh yeah that's that's tough and unfortunate and as you spend more time in the outdoors you need to be you know more cognizant of the risk i suppose but mm -hmm. yeah i had two friends that were just running uh, about a month and a half ago and uh the the one girl was running in front and she didn't see that there was a grizzly about 10 meters off the trail they're running on and moving towards the trail and uh, my buddy Seabass was behind and he yelled out grizzly and stopped. And the bear would have been about three meters from them when they would have uh, at the closest point of approach. You know, it's when you're running and you're sweating, you got your head down and you're on technical terrain, it's pretty easy to walk into something that even though it may be a 400 pound grizzly or 500 pound grizzly, it's, uh, it's not as easy to see that, that color on the, on the landscape and, and rocks. And she came with, she came pretty close. So it can happen incredibly fast, even for ex experienced people. Well, I thought, I don't know if you guys have ever thought this, but I certainly have. Is like, how many times have I been really close to a bear out there and had no idea or a cougar? You know, that's probably happened a whole bunch of times that if you looked, you know, at an aerial dot map that you're just really close to these animals and you just have no idea. And most of the time they want to have nothing to do with you, but not all the time. Um, so, so Nat, we're, we were briefly touching on, on your long CV, but, um, bikepacking, you, um, reached out this early summer. Well, first of all, here's what, here's just for our listeners, you know, I'd get a, I do a long ride on my road bike. I'd get home and I'd <clears throat> open up 
a Strava or Instagram and there would be that's various accounts and she'd be, you know, another gravel ride in Tuscany finished mm-hmm. off with a white wine or a red wine or a craft beer from an Italian craft beer. And, and then I, you know, depressingly close my, my phone and do another ride, let's say from Edmonton to Calgary, which is not Tuscany and uh, open it up again and you'd be doing more gravel in Tuscany. So tell us about this Tuscan gravel biking slash flying for NASA or whatever you were doing trip. This is very intriguing. What, what was that about? Oh yeah. I got a little spoiled on that one. Um, a yeah, little spoiled. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was really good <clears throat> flying, um, an instrument called high tense, which is a hyperspectral thermal machine spectrometer, um, doing various science work surveying for, um, variety of different organizations. But, um, yeah, incredible flying. We got to do some volcanoes in the South of Italy. We went up North to Switzerland, and Matterhorn. Um, doing nitrogen uh, surveys over industrialized areas, kind of all over Italy. Um, it was really, really good and like incredible flying and, and such a wonderful experience. But um, I also got a chance to get on my bike. Is actually the first time I've ever really had like an actual nice bicycle. I kind of got it for myself knowing that this trip was coming up. So um, I packed it up and brought it out there and it was such a good way to be able to you know, go to work and, and do work and, and do the slime and then sort of have my evenings off to, you know, go find dinner for myself on, on the bicycle and get some exercise. And yeah, it was a really cool way to kind of experience the, the place in its own way. I feel like if I was just ripping around in a rental car, I would as good at the time. Yeah, having the bicycle was really cool. Yeah, I really, uh, it was the first time I was ever really like cycling kind of regularly and I just fell in love with it. It was such a cool way to to move through our landscape and go exploring. Especially in Tuscany. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's going to be downhill from there now. <laughs> so, um, what is, so just explain further about this flying. What were you flying and why on earth would you be based in Tuscany? Why didn't they put you in some industrial city that was boring and buy a big airport? And why on earth were you in Tuscany? Um, you know what? That's a question for someone else i just fly the airplane they kind of told me where to go and when they started to face there no further questions that sounded good to me so. yeah like they're tuscany you're yeah. like italy italy tuscany right yeah, <laughs> yeah. not tuscany <laughs> yeah. okay okay um yeah um i i guess they've been doing um similar surveys using other aircraft and just the twin auto made sense as a as a platform for this uh the objectives that they had for this project and um, yeah it's just uh centralized location for a bunch of different agencies so the italian space agency uh, we worked in french for a little bit so we'll go to france for, for about a week of flying there and um yeah good good spot then you kind of get some some markets that were a little bit further north in switzerland and still be back in Tuscany for you know dinner that night so that's it was a good spot for for some survey work amazing so this set the hook for your um, your love now of gravel and bikepacking because you came back and not m- much longer after you came back to Canada, I noticed that you had a bunch of bike bags mounted on your bike <laughs> and that you were uh, debating doing a very long ride. Um, so tell us about uh, tell us about the route you did and how was it? <clears throat> yeah, the route I did. Um, so 
when I was ripping around in Tuscany, it was, it was really great, but it was, you know, after work riding. So, you know, work was a priority and fly, check the weather first thing in the morning, go flying during the day and then sort of have it off to the evening so that I could, you know, my little bike ride. And I just, I always felt like I wanted more time to, you know, just keep going and, you know, see how far I get and, and do maybe longer, longer trips and more intentional with the, you know, by packing and being able to go from, not from point A to point A, but like point A to B to C D. And yeah, I just, I honestly, it's mostly just like browsing through Instagram and being inspired by people that have done really cool things with, with bicycles and, um, came across the uh, route description for the BC Trail, um, which I think normally would start and end, I think somewhere around Fernie and and go out west from yep. there. But I kind of wanted to- hope. Fernie to hope, yeah, somewhere, somewhere in yep. that neighborhood there. Um, but I really wanted something that I could just, you know, leave my front door and, and go do. So I kind of created my own little interpretation of uh, the BC Trail and yeah, got some advice from some great people like Lula Val and, and a few other people that had given me some folders and um, tips and tricks to things to think about. And yeah, I just sort of got the got all the gear and threw it on the bike and then left uh, here in Calgary on August the 1st. And yeah, I just went out to the ocean and, and stayed with some good friends out in Vancouver and had a really, really good time along the way. Um, the hammock, the hammock was high on my priority list of things I wanted to uh, experience and enjoy on this uh just like a, a priority it was a huge priority yeah I got some some pretty good hammock spots along the way um yeah it was a it was a really great lightweight solution for you know not having to carry a tent and I I, I feel like I got away with it everywhere I yeah, was in BC good weather. always trees I got great weather I somehow managed to evade all of the wildfires that had struck BC and it got really bad I think a few days after I had passed through in Kelowna um it was all timing right because there'd be bluebird days and you know you get a south wind from the south mm-hmm. and then it comes from the north and it's like awful like it's an 11 out of 10 so it was hit and hit and miss basically all summer so that's awesome yeah yeah and definitely the fires that that were experienced in BC would have turned me around if uh you know I had left a couple of days later so yeah and this is no real way to predict a lot things so I, I just got really lucky i guess isn't uh bike packing or bike touring or riding your bike and living off your bike i mean it's like backpacking but you're covering far larger distances mm-hmm. but it's such a simple thing you you wake up in the morning you pack up and you have a goal and it's a goal based on distance so you go okay i'm going to ride 133k today because that's where the next town is or that's where i want to camp or that's where there's a lake and it's just such a simple thing to get up every day and just keep moving forward. And you're carrying everything you need on your, not on your back, but on your bike. And it's, it's just such a, a naturally pleasant way to travel and to really see a, to see the land and to, to see people. You're more exposed because you're on a bike and you're more open to, you're not, you're not locked behind glass and steel inside a vehicle. Did you find that? Yeah, absolutely. That definitely resonates with the experience I had. And um, yeah, I was a little nervous before I took off for, for this. I mean, it was my first bikepacking trip. I didn't know what I didn't know. And it's a long way too. Like it's a, it's a long way to the ocean from here. Yeah. A big way that so, like you didn't, yeah, you could have done an overnighter to warm yeah. up, but no, you <laughs> rode all the way to the Pacific Ocean. It's pretty far. 
I had a, I had a really good friend that I was kind of sharing some thoughts and feelings with just before taking off. And it was like the day before. And I'm like, ooh, I don't know if this is like a great idea. And said, you know, just take one day at a time. And and that's all it is. It's like, yeah. you're, you're just going to dance. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I can ride my bike to dance. It's just right over there. And then from dance, it's like, oh, I'm just going to, you know, um, radium. Radium's just right over there. And you just take it one day at a time, and one step at a time. And like you said, Laval, it's so simple. It's just if you have a little problem with something, it's, it's figure it out figure it out and it's always a relatively simple solution and when something mechanical comes up you know i got one flat along the way i had to patch up and it was like how do i do this that's the, yeah, great, thing about, the great thing about the bc trail is like you're in cell phone reception the vast majority of the time and it'd be like oh i've never done this before so what does youtube have to say and all the things are what right. a resource say eh? you're on the side of the road how do i change my tire on youtube i love it I think this one step at a time thing is like any goal, right? You, you, you've got this this distant goal, and it's a large goal, especially when you're new to riding or whenever you're new to something, whether it's getting your becoming a commercial pilot, for example, or anything, or starting a podcast. You just do it step by step, right? Leg by leg, and pretty soon you're there. And you have to break down these big goals like that. You can't look at the fact that you probably rode, I'm going to guess, about 1,300 kilometers or 1,400K, roughly. What 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 was the final? Uh, somewhere in that neighborhood, yeah, 14 yeah. or something, yeah. But if you if somebody said, okay, now go ride 1,400K, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> but if you break it down into these days and these experiences, it's uh, it's completely manageable, isn't it? Yeah, super manageable, just like bite-sized pieces of life. Like I said, BAMF, it's like, oh, it's so familiar. It's just yeah. it's right over there. Like, it's going to be a big day, but like, you know, you stop for lunch somewhere, have a drink, you know, eat some food, and it's, uh, yeah, at the end of the day, you're like, wow, I've made it all the way here. Like, I could do that again tomorrow, no problem. Yeah, it's, it's. I think you're really right about that. It's just making things, it's these like really manageable, manageable, manageable chunks like, and it doesn't seem like such a big thing that and undertake if it's just little steps what did you learn what did you learn about uh first of all how did your butt uh hold out <laughs> so probably you were doing a lot of riding in um in italy but it's not the same as just sitting on six hours a day in your saddle right so how, how did that work out yeah i i feel like i was pretty well conditioned from italy um I didn't tweak anything else with the bike once I kind of like got it right in Italy and I figured out, you know, I want my seat like this and this is the right height that works for me and things kind of going. I invested in a really nice padded chamois and that I think made a huge difference for me. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I felt, felt pretty good with it. Definitely like muscles that I'd never used before, but I didn't know that I had. Um, we're, yeah, coming, coming alive on that trip for sure. But uh, yeah, it's just, it was okay. Sorry. I feel like I learned a lot, like holy. But if anything, I just got more of an itch to do other like backing adventures. There's kind of a long. Well, that was that my next question: is if you, if you, <clears throat> and how many days did you take to get to the Pacific? Uh, I, I think it's thirteen. Okay. Rest day in between, somewhere in yeah, that. So a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks yeah. from your front door. So if you were going to leave tomorrow and you had done other two weeks, which direction would you go? Or would you go northern BC? Would you go south into the U.S.? Oh, good question. Um, close to home, like domestically, I've heard really good things about the Tree to Sea route on Vancouver Island. I've heard that one's absolutely incredible. But I was also the other day just looking at a route that you can do in New Zealand, South Island. That looks 
also quite phenomenal. So I think if I was really going to spoil myself and, and go further afield, I haven't spent any time in New like that. It would be a really cool way of experiencing that. Definitely. We'll be watching. We'll be watching for, I, I think it sounds like you're hooked. Tell us how much you enjoyed Great Creek Pass. Yeah, Great Creek Pass there. It was, uh, ooh, it was a big one. <laughs> Um, I was nervous for that. I, I woke up first thing that morning and I'm like, oh, it's here. And I kind of thought like that in my mind, I, I knew it would be like the kind of make or break. like The crux, the crux of the trip. Absolutely. The crux of the trip. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was, a, it was a pretty decent climb. I had a great little encounter while I was about halfway up. There was this little tiny sedan that was coming down the other side of the mountain with like little city tires on and little hello kitty windshield shades <laughs> wilderness travelers <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely just obviously following google maps on this you know shortcut i was like about halfway up the climb and i just looked at you and was like yeah if that's is this little sedan can make it on on this road i think i'll be okay but uh yeah it was uh i found a little bit more arches going down so I went up the more gradual climb coming from the east going west. And mm-hmm. just the going down, I didn't realize like my hands were oh, like, yeah. like exhausted at the end of the day. It's only a 17 kilometer descent. But oh boy, I was just absolutely just like had to be on the brakes. And it's just such a like, I guess, uncomfortable feeling. Yep. And so lurched over it. And like, yeah, it was, it was, it was harder going down. I think that's what's going on. You've done that pass, haven't you, uh, Pete? You know, between no, Kimberly and... I know exactly yeah. where it is. I've been at the uh, terminus of both points, uh, road cycling around, but I, I've never gone up and over it. I've, I'm usually there in May, in late May, and it's I think there's still two feet of snow at the top of it. Yeah, and just for our listeners, it's a gravel pass in the East Kootenai region of southeastern bc i used to live in kimberley so i know it well but uh yeah that's a good one i was it was cool to see that you did it knocked it off and and you had perfect weather too it was hot wasn't it yeah perfect weather um if anything it was a little too hot but that was really advantageous because there's no snow at the top of the pass i think it's canada's highest road or it claims to be at least canada's and- highest uh drivable pass yeah the highest paved pass, pass is a uh, highwood pass but that's the highest drivable pass yeah so that's a good one yeah yeah it's, i'm so lucky that there's no snow there because that, that would have been a little bit more of an adventure i think and it's only there i think it was built by a company wasn't it laval you probably would know that i don't know i, I mean a mining it, company I, I think a mining company built that road it's the only reason it's even there yeah the government didn't build it so it's interesting but it really shortens like because if you think about if you've been to Kimberley and then you've been to, um, well, I guess you'd be pretty close to Crawford Bay, right? Uh, they're completely different, like ecosystems. Oh, yeah. Very different. Kimberley's much more arid and they're, and on a map, they're actually very close, but it is a it is a monster of a pass to get up and over into a completely different part of BC. And a beautiful part of BC. Like yeah. Once you get over the other, I mean, they're all beautiful, they're but you get beautiful. into that area, the, the West Kootenays, man. Stunning country in there, orchards and just the the whole climate is different. Yeah, it's pretty special. What uh, what what would you ch- change about your gear? Since we have a bunch of cycling nerds listening to this, how was the bag system? I always find that when you first get into bike packing, you go, "Oh, next time, I want to do this or not." Like, and for me, it's the cockpit of the of the bike. 
Mm. Like I always, cause that's where you're living is in that cockpit. Everything, you want your snacks there, your camera there. Like, did you, did you decide for your next trip, you're going to modify some things? Did I decide if I would modify anything? I think my handlebar bag, I'd change a little bit. I invested quite a, a lot of money in like a double rolled up. So like you get access on either side. I think it's a little bit overkill. Mm -hmm. Um, on my back, I just had like a, an old dry bag that I had that sat on a rack and I threw a strap on it. And it yep. was like the simplest, easiest, just most economical great mm -hmm. solution. And I think I'd probably do something like that for, for the front. Just have like a really simple dry bag, strap it on, good to go. Yep. Um, yeah, I think the cockpit, that could probably use a little bit of work. I had like one little couch that I, I had some snacks in. And I think if I were to do it again, I'd probably have like two couches. Yeah, I carry two as well. Those are so yeah. handy. Yeah, those those are great. Just put your great... gloves in there, sunglasses, food, whatever. Yeah, all your stuff and just so easy to get at, ready to go. Um, yeah, I'd probably I'd probably change that, but uh, I don't know if there's anything else really. I probably brought too much stuff, which I think a lot of you bike packers they fall into that trap of just having too much stuff. Um, but yeah, it depends on what kind of uh, I might be doing for my next one. The the BC Trail, it's it's so everything's so accessible. I mean, I didn't bring stoves because I mean, as a needed one, there's just cafes and restaurants. And oh, that's nice. Get food pretty much yeah, in Southern BC, you're coming across a lot of great little towns that in, a lot of them even have cool, funky little bike shops in them. Small oh, yeah. towns. You're surprised to find a bike shop, but it's a great spot to introduce yourself to it for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so many great options for like if you, I mean, I didn't have any serious mechanical issues, but if I did, I, I felt like I was never super far away from, you know, a shop that would be able to help me out with this stuff. So yeah, that was really good. And it was also like part of the experience too, to be able to experience the little coffee shops and, you know, the mom and pop stands along the way. That was, that was the yeah, experience. Yeah, it's the best. That, you know, Quite a bit, he has yeah. some rail trail riding too, which is so cool. Yeah, I like I the rail those. grade. Oh, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I like the rail grade, especially after Great Creek Pass. Yeah. yeah, that's uh that's a beautiful part of the road. Good for you for doing that. So I guess um that leads us right into what's next. You're writing a book. You're going on an expedition. Uh, you you told me you're flying uh, today. You're flying out, are you to up to Fort Mac? Uh, tomorrow I'm gonna start a rotation. So I'm flying a Navajo doing some survey now. So. Yeah, that's kind of the next couple of weeks. Um, generally excited about it. It's been a few weeks since I since I've been flying. So yeah, I'm excited to to do a little bit of survey flying. And then yeah, I'm not entirely sure what's coming up next. There's a few creative projects that I've kind of got um on the burners right now. There's uh, a book that I'm sort of in the process of editing and, and finishing up. And uh, it's about poetry and Antarctica and aviation and and flying. And it's it's one that I feel like I want it to be just right. I don't. I don't really want to put it out there if it's not ready yet. And I've been mm -hmm. kind of sitting on it for for a good part of six months now. So it's not quite where I want it to be, but it's something that I'm sort of working on, more excited than anything else. I have on the boat right now. But yeah, hopefully I've got some time coming up here to polish it off, and then yeah, when it's ready, it'll be out there. We've been told by. Uh, some of our guests that we've had on the last one we had on was a tour to, a u.s tour to france writer um tyler hamilton who's done some very difficult things in his life obviously riding around france for one um he said that writing a book was the hardest thing he's ever done by far mm. so it must it, it, it just must be a grind 
I mean, I, I don't know if poetry is the same way, but are you ever finished? Do you ever write a poem and then look back at it and go, I nailed it? Or do you always want to go back and modify and go, I should have changed that, like a well, painting? It, it It's like, it's a thing that's alive. It's just, it's never, it's never done. It can always be changed. And I feel like when you hit, like, you know, send, done, yep. gone up to the printer, it's like, that is the expression yeah. of this project at that point in its life. But, you know, there's so many edits that happen. And I look at the book that I put out, uh, well, man, it's been two years ago now. And there's so many things I would change. If I were to put it out again, it wouldn't look remotely. That's because you're different now, right? So like art is yeah. like, art is a living thing. And it's like, if you, if a couple conceives a child on a Tuesday, it's a different child than it would have been if that child was conceived conceived the following week it's just it's captured in that time but i always find the artistic process really interesting whatever kind it is whether that's a movie or a short or a book or or a poem or a book of poetry or a song like the determination of when it's quote unquote done which isn't even really a thing it's never actually done but when you choose to stop working on it right like why is a song left as just with an acoustic guitar and they don't add a piano like who makes that decision and when do you decide to publish it and it's i find that really really interesting to sort of uh be done with it and then give it to the world and then it becomes something else right yeah absolutely that's a really good analogy there um there's so many projects that i have that i i get into this like resistance mode where I'm just like, Ooh, like it's a really important one and it means a lot to me and I want it to be just right. But I think that can kind of detract away from, you know, if you don't have a deadline and you don't have things actually going out into the, into the world, like they're not born yet, you know, and sometimes right. it's better to let go of that perfectionism and just say, you know what? Yes. Perfection <laughs> is the enemy. Yeah. Perfection can be the enemy. Absolutely. Um, so I think like in that sense, it's really a positive thing to have deadlines. <laughs> Or, or right. well, or oh yeah, for sure. And not Everybody not having, it. yeah, not having someone tell me like this needs to be done by Tuesday. It's like, oh well, maybe I'll go for bike ride. Yeah, go for bike Yeah, I'll eventually what, give, give myself a bit of kick and, and get some stuff out there. One one thing. This is uh, the opposite end of your of your specialties: um, it, aviation and the outdoors. They're to me. The stuff that I've learned as a pilot, which is the only thing I've ever done, and as an outdoor adventurer, to me, they are a really good match because I have used what I've learned in aviation when it comes to risk management, self-critique, um, checklist usage, following procedures. I think it's really worked with me in the in the backcountry when I'm when I'm pushing things. Do do you get that same thing too, or is that something that only I see that that? Have you got a lot out of aviation and vice versa that makes your two career paths better because of it? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely a lot of parallels. Um, I think just having situational awareness is a huge one. Um, and I, I think for me, having started my career in the outdoors and guiding, just I think it was a good place to you know make the transition into aviation because I think it's just having that mentality of like what's going on around you in the big picture. That, that really, I think, helped me a lot with uh, with the flying. And, and like you say, the use of checklists and procedures and risk management, there's so many overlaps between how you move safely through the wilderness and you know, having an awareness of what's going on around you, where are the risks, what are you willing to risk. But it, there's so many parallels, yes. And and other things too, like you know, being able to interpret the weather. That's a new mm -hmm. skill to have. 
Yeah. Because it's it, in a teamwork sense, it's very similar to because I'd imagine as a wilderness guide or when I'm with people in the backcountry, you keep an eye on them, right? You look mm -hmm. for certain telltale signs that that I can tell this person's favoring their foot, they've got a blister, or this person's obviously not going to make it to the next stop. We're gonna have to, and I think it's the same way in aviation with a crew member, with your team. And, and for me, when I have, you know, I fly aircraft with, with multiple crew members on board that you have to always sort of get a feel for how everybody's doing, right? Because you're, as a captain, you're the leader of this, of this crew. And you have to be always aware, just like you are when you're leading an expedition or when you're leading a wilderness trip, is, is you have to always be aware of the, of the personalities and everybody's situation as you're, like you said, the, the personal awareness, but also situational awareness. I think it's a really good meld. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> it sounds like a trip to New Zealand is uh, upcoming. So any yeah. any listeners listeners who've done done uh, bike packing in New Zealand should reach out to Nat on Instagram and give yeah. her some pro tips. I'd appreciate that a lot. Well, that, we'll, segues, uh, that segues well into where can people find uh, yes. this beautiful Instagram account that I've been gushing about and mm -hmm. uh, everything else that you're up to. You have a, you have a website too, right? Uh, yeah, I've got a website. It's just nataliegillisphotography.ca. Um, Instagram handles uh, for my more photography specific account. It's just at natgillisphotography, and then a more personal account is more, I guess, adventure side of side of life is just at natgillis. Well, listen, Nat, uh, Pete, and I really appreciate you finally joining us. It's been hard to get all of our schedules to align. We're going to have you back because I want to hear about what you've been up to. And uh, I'm sure you're going to thrill us and inspire us with some of your uh, travels and your activities. So thanks very much again for coming on to the Adventure Audio Podcast. Yeah, really appreciate so much it. for having me. Yeah, and really great to meet you there, Pete. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. One last big, big thank you to Nat Gillis for joining us on the podcast. Like most of our guests, we'd love to have Nat back on. She's constantly filling up her, her uh, checklist with adventures, and we'd love to see more and hear more about it. Uh, a reminder of the 4i contest, so you can reach out to us with the answer of what was Nat's preferred sleeping method in her bike packing trip through British Columbia. And you can email that to adventureaudiopodcast at gmail.com or any other questions or comments or concerns about the show, anything that you've heard of uh, that you'd like to know more of or hear more of, please let us know that. And you can also shoot us notes uh, through DM on our Instagram account. Thank you everybody for tuning in and we'll be back soon.